right, let's pray and we'll jump into the sermon today. Lord, God, we praise your name. Glorify you and thank you for bringing us here together as a community to worship you. Lord, to celebrate the table and the Lord's Supper together yet again. And Lord, to give you honor and glory, to be reminded of the deepest needs that we have, the deep mysteries of the faith, and Lord Jesus, to know you more and to strengthen our faith. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Okay, this campaign, <laughs> said that like a radio announcer, okay, um, this campaign is called The Table. We just started it last week. Uh, when we talk about a table, a table is this rich metaphor uh, in life and in the Christian tradition. In the Christian tradition, when we talk about the table or somebody says we are coming to the table, we are referring to communion or to the Lord's Supper or to the Eucharist, depending on which tradition you are familiar with. Um, so it, it's, this, it's this rich symbol for that, because it points us to what Christ has done on the cross for us. The table, as we'll also discover in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, is what unites us as a church. So this is supposed to be one of these things that points us to our unity as a church, pointing us to Christ, which unifies us as the body of Christ, which is Paul's favorite metaphor for the church. If we were to zoom out a little bit and think about a table, when you reflect on what a table represents and what a table means, it's this symbol of hospitality, the symbol of community, the symbol of welcome. Uh, welcoming somebody to your table is welcoming somebody to one of the most intimate spaces in your home, right? And when we think about a table for this week, especially, we think about a table, the table is also what kind of centers a lot of our celebrations. When we think about Christmas, Thanksgiving, some of these birthdays, etc., they often revolve around a table. That that's where we gather. That's where we hang out. That's where we eat together. And so it has this. It's this rich, rich metaphor. This symbol that points us strongly to the way of Jesus. So later in this campaign, we'll talk about hospitality and talk about some of that other stuff. Uh, but. To begin the campaign, we're talking about the original table and Jesus, and when he instituted the Last Supper, and when he instituted the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper, oh, I'm going to confuse those a lot, I apologize. So, at the Last Supper, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So we're going to look at that original table, and we're spending a few weeks just talking about that in Luke chapter 22. Last week we talked about some of the, the big picture meaning of communion, and what's happening here, and what we're, what we're doing, why we do this together as a church family. And we said a couple of things. One, it reminds us, uh, we practice memorial communion here, so it reminds us of the atoning death of Christ for our sins. So it points us to the, the reality that when we are in Christ, when we believe in Jesus, that he has justified us, that he has made us new, he has atoned for our sins by dying on the cross for us. And so communion reminds us of that. It reminds us of our identity in Christ, that as we partake of the bread and as we partake of the juice or the wine, uh, in some traditions, we're reminded that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We identify with Christ and Christ identifies with us, that we are his body. And then our faith is also just strengthened. So as we partake of the, of the bread and of the juice, it's this like physical act that reminds us of these super important spiritual realities. But these spiritual realities, they kind of just seem 
kind of out there, amorphous. They're just like kind of these fuzzy concepts to us often. And so when we take these tangible things and we participate in them together, it's, it's strengthening, strengthening our faith, reminding us of the core of our faith. And last week, I missed one really important piece of communion that I didn't do a, uh, a good enough job of really like diving into and reflecting on together as a community. And this is a theme that I tend to miss often in life in general, and that is the celebration of communion. It took a conversation with our good friend Chuck Beckler to remind me of this. So if this sermon is terrible, blame Chuck. If it's great, you can give me credit for it. I'm kidding. Don't do that. That was a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. <sighs> You're like, do better. Do better and I'll laugh, John. Um, <laughs> so, as I was reflecting on this and reflecting on that conversation and the nature of communion in and of itself, there's a celebratory aspect to it. And part of my personality, I tend to just like overlook the annual regular celebrations. If you ask my wife, Savannah, I'm kind of a bummer around birthdays. Like, I don't not celebrate them. I'm cool with them. I don't have any like deep-seated reason for why I'm not like gung-ho about birthdays. But like, I'll hang out. Sure, we can have cake. I don't care, but I'm not like go big. I'm not the kind of guy who's like streamers, <laughs> kazoo, everybody, let's go. Like, that's just not my thing. I'll celebrate stuff like in the moment. Like if it's, uh, oh, I was thinking about this, like, like when Argentina won the World Cup, man, I went nuts. I was like, I was crazy. When it comes from the, the World Series in 2016, I'll celebrate that with you. I'll go nuts. That's super great. In the moment, I celebrate. I love it. Also, like the birth of my kids and, and my wedding day. Like, I'll celebrate those things in the moment. But then when it comes to like the regular, like long-term, you know, annual celebrations, I kind of stink at those. So as I've been reflecting on that, like I've probably been robbing you guys of these celebrations that we're supposed to have as a church together for like eight years, right? So this is me trying to make it up to you by making an entire sermon about the celebration of communion, okay? So this is my apology, and this is my emphasis on celebration in communion together. We won't, we won't go there. Okay. Luke 22. <laughs> a lot of stuff. A lot of weird stuff just pops up into my head sometimes as I'm preaching, and I'm like, mm, make a quick decision. Nope, not going to go. Okay. Luke 22. Let's start reading. We, we read this last week, so we're just going to read it through a little bit of a different lens, and I'll recap a little bit for those of you who weren't here uh, last week. But for those of you who were here, I'll recap it a little faster, okay, so that you're not just hearing the same sermon again. Luke 22, starting here in verse 7, says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Okay, so here we see in these two verses, the Passover occurs twice, and then the feast of unleavened bread. So, we said last week that Jesus never really gives his disciples like a, a sit-down lecture on what he's going to do in the cross, which is interesting, right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't just sit them down and say for like two hours, we're going to talk about this, and I'm going to explain to you everything that I'm doing. He explains it to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, but he doesn't really beforehand. This is Jesus' teaching. This is his classroom. 
the dinner table at the Passover is Jesus' classroom. And when we kind of get into the mind of a first century uh, Jewish person like his disciples, we get what Jesus is doing here much more. That this is his classroom, this is his lecture on the cross and what the cross means. And it's full with these rich symbols of the Passover and what was actually what they were actually celebrating as they shared this meal together. So in the Passover, what the people of Israel did every year was uh, share this meal together, which was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So for a week, they would take all of the yeast, all the leaven, out of their bread, and they would eat the like thin wafers. The bread wouldn't rise. And the Passover kicked it off. So this was the first the meal that would kick off this week-long celebration. And in the Passover, they were commemorating their exodus from Egypt. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12, really the whole book of Exodus, how the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And then through, uh, God works through Moses to bring about the ten plagues. Right? And we're familiar, you're likely familiar with those in some capacity. The last of the ten plagues is the angel of death is going to come through the city of Egypt, and God would kill the firstborn in every household unless they had the blood of the lamb over the door or posts of their house. So God gave a way of escape, and this is, in a sense, God like bringing back and returning on Pharaoh the evil that he did to the Hebrew people by having the, fir- by having the, the boys killed uh, early on in the Moses story. Remember that story? Right. So God is demonstrating his power, his authority over the Egyptian gods, and he's like returning the evil that Pharaoh brought on the people of Israel. And so, God gives this, the people a way of escape. So you can escape this judgment if you'll put the blood of the lamb over the door of the post, or the door of your household. And the people of Israel, they didn't, they, they sacrificed the lamb, they were to share this meal together, where they were to have a, a bitter herb and eat unleavened bread. And the point of all of it was, trust in God that God is about to deliver you, and be ready to go. Because <laughs> God is going to deliver you now. And so when you eat this meal, God tells them, eat it with your shoes on. Eat it with like your belt tightened. Like your stuff is packed. You are ready to go. And they're like, yeah, but we've had nine plagues before and Pharaoh hasn't said anything. God's like, nope. Trust, trust me, this one, Pharaoh's going to let you go. And Pharaoh does. And so the whole theme of, of not having, of unleavened bread is haste. Right? When you put yeast in dough, it takes a while for it to rise. So the reason they ate unleavened bread was you don't have time. Okay, God's going to bring this punishment, this judgment, and then you've got to get out, and you've got to go. Because as we know from the story, Pharaoh changes his mind, and he pursues them, and he chases them. So this is God's deliverance story. This is God's liberation story of his people Israel. They are oppressed in Egypt. They have been enslaved unjustly. And this is God's deliverance of them, his salvation, his liberation of his people who were in slavery. And so that's what they're celebrating. So as they sit down and share this meal together, and they're, they're eating the Passover meal together, they're remembering what God has done to deliver them and their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. This is their annual participation in that, not just remembering it, but like, hey, we're kind of participating with our ancestors in this story by sharing this meal together. And this meal would take a long time. They would take like two to four hours where they would just sit, they would talk, the kids would ask questions, 
And the parents would explain, they would read the Exodus story together, and they would share the meal together. It's called the Passover Seder that's still celebrated in Jewish communities today. So this is all kind of operating in the background as they come into this meal. Okay, so if you're familiar with the Christian tradition, the Christian faith, and Jesus, uh, you start putting two and two together. Right? Okay, so you see why this is like, uh, 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 this is Jesus' classroom. You see why this begins to make sense. That, oh, Jesus didn't have to say all of that stuff because it was already operating in their minds as they're eating this meal together. It's all the symbolism of the Passover and what's happening here. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take all of these symbols and infuse them with new meaning. All right. Today, we're just talking about the celebration piece. So, let's talk about how big of a celebration the Passover was. So, to do so, let's turn this Deuteronomy text. In Deuteronomy 16, it says, You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord God gives you, except in the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Okay, so this is a part of the law. And basically, the only reason I put this up here is to say that they were only to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, where the temple was, where God put his name. So what that means is Jews from all over the world would travel to Jerusalem for this festival, for this feast. And they'd stay there for the whole week of the festival of unleavened bread. Some estimates places that like 100,000, 200,000 people who don't normally live in Jerusalem would come to Jerusalem. So that's a lot of additional people in an ancient city to house. And it's this big party where you've got distant relatives who have moved away, you've got friends, you've got family who you all gather together in Jerusalem for this celebration every year. Okay, so it's, I was trying to think of a good example, there isn't really one in our culture. It's like Christmas. Right? But, like, not just your family all coming home for Christmas. I don't know what the song is, right? You guys don't want me to sing the song. <laughs> Put on my best Mariah Carey impersonation. Okay. <laughs> You're like, please no. Don't. Don't. I won't. Don't worry. <laughs> so they all come home for Christmas. <laughs> they celebrate this meal together. But it's not just your family. It's, like, you're all of your people. Your entire community, we have, no, we have no thing that is like this. Think of it like, I don't know, if you're a football fan, the Super Bowl. Or like if you like the Olympic sports, like the Olympics or the World Cup, where people from all over the world will come together in one location to celebrate this event. It's a huge party, and people are reuniting and sharing together in this celebration. Okay, Second Chronicles, chapter 30, uh, is talking about King Hezekiah. The people of Israel had not been celebrating the Passover as they had been supposed to, and they were required to by the law for, for years, because they had a lot of really bad kings. So if you read through the story of the Bible, there were a lot of really bad kings in Israel's history. And so Hezekiah comes on the scene, and he reinstitutes the Lord's Supper, and they celebrate it once again. And when he does, here's what it says in 2 Chronicles 30. The Israelites who were present in Jerusalem celebrated the festival of unleavened bread for seven days with great rejoicing, while the Levites and priests praised the Lord every day with resounding instruments dedicated to the Lord. 
And I love this. They didn't just celebrate it with great rejoicing for the, the, the first festival. They had such a good time, they kept it going for another week. The whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. So for another seven days, they celebrated joyfully. So I said, all right, that was fun. We haven't done this in a while. Let's run it back another week. Which, imagine just being there and being like, you know what? I can take off work another week. We'll be fine. Let's just stay here. We don't want to go back yet. And so they keep the festival going. It's this big celebration, lots of joy, lots of fun. Ezra 6.22. So this is after the people of Israel had returned from exile. So they were exiled into Babylon and Assyria. And after they returned from exile, they celebrate the Passover after they had rebuilt the temple. For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy, by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. So notice the joy theme as they celebrate the Passover. Notice the celebration theme as they're partaking in the Passover together. Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian, he says that they spared no expense in the celebration of this Passover. Which, imagine just returning from exile, you probably don't have a lot of money. What are you going to choose to spend your money on? If you're like me, you're like, save it, hoard it. <laughs> no. But they spend their money in rejoicing and celebrating the Passover together. So, back to Luke 22. This is all kind of operating in the background of the minds of the people, this celebration theme. There's also this holiness theme or this uh, cleanse, cleansing theme that we see at the Passover, which interestingly, Jesus, when he comes into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, he cleanses the temple, the text says, right? He overturns the tables of the money changers and he cleanses the temple. That's kind of keeping with the Hezekiah, uh, the Josiah themes of cleansing the temple. We'll talk about that in the devotional. I won't go there today. I kind of got on a bit of a rabbit trail in the devotional, so you got to kind of just go along with me. But that's definitely there as well. Luke 22, if we continue reading here in verse 9, where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He'll show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus has told, had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. So remember last week, we kind of looked at this term just a little bit. Reclined at the table. In the ESV, it translates it's just, it doesn't include the. It says reclined at table, because that's like one theme in itself. And if you're reading it in the ESV, and you're like, hmm, that sounds weird. You can just read the the into it. But it's just one, it's one word with one idea of reclining at the table. So this was what they would do for celebrations, for festivals and feasts. Normally, they would sit up at the table and eat their meal. But at feasts and special times, they would recline. So it's like when you have a special meal, or you have friends over, and we would eat the meal at the table, and then move to the couch, they just did it all at the table. So they just recline on pillows at the table and sit there and share in this Passover meal together. So remember, it would take like two to four hours for them to go through this whole process. So they're just reclining and lounging at the table together. And this posture in and of itself is a celebration. We don't really think of reclining as much of a celebration, but the older I get, 
the more I do. <laughs> like, this is great. The opportunity to finally sit down and lay down and take a nap. That would be awesome. My brother-in-law, he would always like fall asleep at all of our family celebrations and events. And I was like, how can he do that? There's kids like jumping on his chest and he's sleeping. I understand. I now understand. On this, D.A. Carson, his commentary on the Gospel of John, he writes, they reclined at the tables, what he's talking about, almost as a mark of unhurried celebration and freedom, in self-conscious contrast with the haste with which the, pa the first Passover was eaten on the night of the Exodus. So remember, the theme of the first Exodus was, be ready to go, haste, unleavened bread, okay? Like, you don't have time to wait. Eat this meal with your shoes on and your belt strapped around your waist, like you're ready to move, you're ready to go. So, when they eat this meal by reclining at the table, it's this symbol and this posture that reminds them of the freedom that they now enjoy because of God's deliverance in the Exodus. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? Okay, because when they were in Egypt, they couldn't recline at the table and eat right, and take their time because they were slaves. They were not free to do that. At any point, someone could step in and say, hey, go do this, and they have to do it. Right? But because of God's deliverance that he brought them, they are now free to do that. And so they celebrated this by lounging, reclining, resting at the table and taking their time with this Passover meal. Going on, we're just going to read the rest of this as a recap. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So there's another celebration theme. Jesus was really looking forward to this time with his disciples. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Band, you guys can come and get set up here. So this is what we're remembering in communion. So remember, as we come to the table to take communion together, all of this was operating in the background of the disciples' minds. As they're sharing this meal together, it's the Passover, it's the Exodus, it's God's power, God's might, God's deliverance from slavery from the people of Israel in the past. And so as Jesus takes these symbols that they're so familiar with, and he, he, he here infuses them with new meaning, right? He takes the bread, this is my body, given for you. They would have four cups of wine, and he takes one of the cups of wine, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Big words, right? Big words. This new covenant that he's replacing the law of Moses and the covenant law of Moses with a new covenant in himself, that Jesus has fulfilled all of it, that that Passover lamb was ultimately, that the lamb of the entire sacrificial system was ultimately pointing ahead to Jesus, because those lambs, they never covered sin. They never took away the sins of God's people. It was and always will be through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for us that sins are removed from us. So communion is a celebration. And when I come back up, we'll talk about exactly what we are celebrating. But just like the Passover meal was a celebration, so in the Lord's Supper, 
we move from the solemn nature of Christ's death on the cross for us and our sins, and we move to the celebration of what Christ has achieved in his death and resurrection for us. Let's pray, and then we'll worship together. Lord, God, we thank you for the big story of Scripture that's just so beautifully woven together that, God, as we look at the Passover, as we look at Jesus, as we look at the history of the people of Israel, and, Lord, the, the new people of God that you are making of all people from all over creation, Lord, we're just amazed at your sovereignty, at, Lord, how you have written this story so perfectly. And, God, we're just amazed that you would love us so much, that you would deliver us, that you would save us through Jesus. And so, Lord, you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our celebration. And so, Lord, we give it to you. And, Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. It's in your name that we sing. Amen. Lord, we praise you and we worship you and we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, for your mercy and your faithfulness. Lord, that we remember as we come to communion, come to the table together. So, Lord, would you be honored and glorified in our life. And, Lord... My prayer for us is that, Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross, Jesus, the resurrection life that you give us, would just be magnified to us. That, Lord, we would view what you have done for us as something truly worth celebrating. So, Lord, would you stir that in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat for a few minutes. <clears throat> This week, I've been thinking about a lot of the stuff that I celebrate. <laughs> the celebrations that we have. I mentioned birthdays earlier, and some of the things we celebrate are super trivial, right? <laughs> like, no offense to birthday people. I love y'all. I love birthdays, and they're fine. But it's like we celebrate the day that we came out of our mother's womb. It's like, cool, like, great. Like, we can celebrate that, and that's fine. It's like a celebration of the person now, which is cool, which is fine. Uh, but it's relatively pretty trivial, isn't it? Like, the celebration of that moment. They celebrate, like, sports events. Like, like every year. Oh, man, was it, was it November 2nd? I can't remember because of the night. But whatever. When, when the Cubs won, I think it was November 2nd. When the Cubs won the World Series, I, like, remember that day every year. Like, this was the time. Super trivial. Sports don't really mean anything, right? Uh, <laughs> we celebrate this stuff, and we remember this stuff. And we're often better at celebrating those things than the things that actually mean something. The things that really have deep meaning to us. And that have changed the landscape of all of creation. Like, this event, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, is the moment that changed the landscape of the entire history of humanity and all of creation and all of the cosmos. And we come to the community and we're just like, eh, another thing to check off my box for the week. Whoa, 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 what? <laughs> this is the celebration. This is the thing that should stir in us the most excitement. And I get it. We can't, like, replicate the annual celebrations because we do this more often than that. It's kind of hard to kind of get that, get that, uh, get yourself in that right state of mind to celebrate that because we celebrate communion so often. But the way we can do that is by reflecting on the great weight of it. 
and how much communion really means for us personally, but also for all of creation. Because Christ is redeeming all of creation and making all things new. And we're a part of that, of his redemption of us and making us new and changing us. And so, yes, we celebrate this more often than we celebrate other things. And so it can be hard to kind of replicate that same emotion with the frequency with which we celebrate communion. But we can get there by reflecting on the great meaning of it and the great value of it. Because in communion, we are celebrating our freedom from sin and our new life in Christ. Our freedom from sin and our new life in Christ. Now, I said earlier, Jesus didn't really give a doctoral thesis on the nature of the cross and what he was about to do. Instead, he showed a meal, a Passover meal that was rich in all of these symbols that I've been trying to tease out for you so you knew what Jesus was doing there with his disciples. And he, he kind of infused those symbols with new meaning. That was, that was his classroom and that was his lecture and his lesson. And it was super effective. His disciples got it. Paul, on the other hand, was the kind of guy who would sit down and give you a long lecture right, and tease out all of it. He talked so long at one point that a dude fell asleep and fell out of a window. It's crazy. <laughs> and Paul gives us this description of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for us and what we're celebrating in communion in Romans chapter 6. This is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. We're just going to read a couple of segments of it because it's quite long and it's quite detailed. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Just getting at this identification with Christ motif. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Okay, so just like the Passover was this liberation story, so when we reflect on the cross, this is our liberation story. From slavery to sin. That before Jesus, we were enslaved to our sin. That we were hopelessly bound to a life of sin and the consequences of sin being death. Because of Jesus, and if we die with Jesus, which is symbolized in baptism, right, and our, our acceptance and our faith and our belief in Jesus, we die to our old self, and then we will experience the resurrection, the new life of Christ, which has been set free from sin. Paul says in verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is that when we are in Christ, we're celebrating our identification with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So we're celebrating the death of our old former self and celebrating this new self made new in Jesus with his resurrection life. And so, to effectively have a celebration, <laughs> we have to reflect on this. We have to reflect on who we were before Jesus. And this is where I think a lot of us honestly get stuck. Is It's hard to think about 
our shortcomings, our failures, and in, in our Western culture, we, we try not to think about those things. Instead, we just like sugarcoat them, we cover them up, and we say, oh, wasn't that big of a deal. Like, let's just think about the fun stuff and the happy stuff, and then distract ourselves with all the other things. We don't actually have to do some self-examination and reflection on our own heart and why we do the things that we do, especially before we came to believe in Jesus. And what that does is it reduces in our mind the grace of God in salvation. So if we don't realize how bad we were without Jesus and how great we are now with Jesus, then the celebration is lessened. Does that make sense? Sort of. Okay, so here's an illustration. Back to the World Cup, man. I'm all into soccer now. It's crazy. I don't even know who I am. Talk about being a new person. Man, my junior high self would be blown away. Okay. So I was watching a World Cup game, and Argentina, they, uh, the finals, they go up 2-0. Nil. <laughs> they go up 2-0. And I'm thinking, okay, they're just going to cruise to the championship, and they're just going to win it. And if they did, I'd been like, oh, great. They won. I'd feel great. I'd celebrate a little bit, right? But if you watch the game, you saw what happened, right? So they go up 2-0. France comes back. They tie it. At 2-2, two, two, it goes to extra time. Argentina scores. I'm like, yes, they're going to win. And then France ties it again. And they go to penalty kicks, and Argentina wins in penalty kicks. And through all of that stress, and after all of that, my celebration was like 10 times more. <laughs> because it became uncertain, right, if they were actually going to win the game. And so, I don't know if this is a good example or not. I just thought of it. So. <laughs> if we don't realize, if we don't have the sense of like how big of a change it was and how meaningful it is that we are made new in Christ and we are set free from our sin, if we never reflect on our former life of sin and how enslaved we were to sin, the, the liberation of Jesus will just kind of be like, eh, yeah, he kind of owed me that, we tend to think. We're like, I, I'm, I'm, I was good before, actually, and now I'm just maybe a little bit better. No, 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 no. That's not the gospel story. The gospel story is you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But because of the great love of God and the mercy of God, he has made us alive with Christ. It is as dramatic a life change as can happen because of Jesus. And that's what we're remembering on the cross is what he has done for us in redeeming us and setting us free. Even the Apostle Paul, who the dude was a Pharisee and followed the law religiously, he said in Romans chapter 7, just one chapter after the one that we just read, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> He's reflecting on who he was as a Pharisee and how Christ had redeemed him and set him free. So we need to start there. We need to go on this journey as we take communion together. Remember who we were in Christ. Say, wretched man that I am. <laughs> How I was sinful and fallen and enslaved in my sin. And then Jesus. <laughs> Who will redeem me? Who will save me? Who will set me free from this enslavement to my sin? Jesus. Jesus has. And when we recognize our enslavement to sin, that we move to Jesus, we can celebrate. Because we're set free. We're redeemed. And we're not just set free from our sin, we're totally made new. 
We have this whole new life in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me, as Paul says. And so we have this new identity, this new resurrection life in Jesus. And this resurrection life comes with some pretty awesome rewards. One, all of the insecurities of my former life, I don't have to hold on to those anymore. I still wrestle with them, but I know that I have power over them. Because Jesus, the biggest one for me is people-pleasing. We all have our things, right? I felt like I had to earn the approval of people by my performance. I don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because Jesus has accepted me. Because Jesus has saved me and Jesus has redeemed me. And although I still struggle with that in my sinful nature, gosh, it's good to know <laughs> that I don't have to carry the burden of that anymore. That I don't have to strive so much for the approval of others because I know God has accepted me. And that's what means the most to me. In Jesus, we don't have to worry about our former sins. We've all done stuff. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And one of the greatest lies of the devil is to keep throwing those back at you and reminding you of those things and saying, oh, you're, you're pretty awful. And we can say, yes, I was. I can truthfully say, yes, I was. And I don't have to deny it. I don't have to sugarcoat it. I don't have to reject the truth of it. I can say, yes, but I am made new in Jesus. And I have a new identity in Christ. So it holds together the truth of what we know to be true about ourselves and about the world, but also it gives us hope. Because you know what? That's not me anymore. <laughs> I'm made new in Jesus. How great is that? We don't have to cling to these former sins of our life that just Satan wants to throw at you and leave you in guilt and shame. And say, nope, I'm set free. And now when those sins keep tempting me again and again and again, I can say, no, now I have power in Jesus because, again, I'm made new and I have the Holy Spirit of God living in me. So you have no power over me because I'm not enslaved to my life of sin anymore. I'm living in the resurrection life of Jesus. And in this resurrection life, we have hope. When the world around us looks so dark, when our circumstances are dark, relationships are strained, our health is failing, we can be discouraged, distressed. If I follow the logical train of thought, say if this happens and this happens and everything goes bad, worst case scenario, you know where the result leads me? I'm with Jesus in the new creation. So what do I have to fear? What do I have to worry about? Why am I so worried? Why am I so anxious? I can live in the resurrection, new life of Christ. And I can celebrate that. And I don't have to wait from, to die <laughs> to celebrate and enjoy the resurrection life of Christ because I have it now. And communion reminds us of that. We can celebrate what Jesus has done for us and how this is the best way to be human. Because this is the way God made us. This is what God has written into the fabric of the universe as the whole story of Scripture reveals to us. That this is true. This is what we were created for. And in this we can find peace with God. And we can even find peace with one another. <laughs> for reconciliation. The cross gives us hope for reconciliation one to another. The cross unites us when 
The world is so polarized around us. Everyone goes to their corners and comes out fighting. We can be united in Jesus and come out loving people <laughs> and caring for people, even when they disagree with us, even when they persecute us. Because that's what Christ did, and that's what Jesus did. So we can have hope. It gives us hope. It gives us meaning. It gives us purpose in this resurrection new life of Christ. Because Christ is our liberator and our redeemer, and that's what we celebrate when we come to communion together. So we're going to come to communion and I invite you guys to go on that story, to think of your former life in Christ, to remind yourself of what Christ has redeemed you from, the sins of your former life that used to just plague you, and now you look back and you say, yes, I still see that I struggle with those, but in Jesus I know that I am free, I know that I am holy, I know that I am set, made righteous before God. And so I can be with God forever. And so as you hold those communion elements in your hands, that's the story I want you to think through. How Christ has saved you, how Christ has redeemed you, and how you are now celebrating and enjoying this newness of life that you have in Jesus. The elements are up here. We'll spread them out on the table here for you. Come and take two cups. There's two cups. One's, one's beneath the other one. So just hold on to them. Hold on to them. Reflect on your story of how Christ has saved and redeemed you. And then I'll pray and we'll partake of them together. Okay. Front rows, you guys start by coming into the middle. And when the row in front of you finishes, you follow them up. Grab the communion elements. Take them back to your chair and hold on to them. with me for the bread first. Lord Jesus, as we hold this bread in our hand, we're reminded of the sinfulness of our nature. That, Lord, naturally, in and of ourselves, we are sinful. And now we have offended you in so many ways, Lord. And we move to the cross. And Jesus, how you took our sin and your flesh on that cross and you died for us so that, Lord, we might go free. And in the cross, you took the punishment that we deserved for our sin, that we might be liberated, that we might be free. We might walk in your righteousness, not in our own. So, Lord, we thank you for enduring our punishment in our place and for how you love us. We remember you as we partake together. Let's partake of the bread. shed for us that like the blood of a lamb over the doorpost we trust in your bloodshed for our deliverance for our salvation we don't trust in our own righteousness but in yours Jesus in your sacrifice for us that you love us that you died for us to make us new to justify us before you God that we might be in your presence forever. So Jesus, we are so thankful that your righteousness through your blood is ours. And we trust in nothing else for our salvation. And remember you as we partake. Let's partake of the cup together.
Well, let's stand. Let's sing a little bit more together in praise to our Savior in celebration of what he has done for us. Now he has redeemed us and made us new.